moderates seem to be the most sensitive to changes in risk. So that's to say, when risk is really low, the moderates behave similarly to conservatives in that not as many of them are willing to get vaccinated compared to Democrats. But as you dial up the risk so that the risk is really, really high, then liberals or Democrats are much more willing to get vaccinated compared to Republicans, and so are the moderates. So the moderates sort of swing the most. They seem to be most sensitive to information about the risk of the disease. Meet Bert Baumgartner, an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at the University of Idaho. For months, the United States and the rest of the world have been tracking the development and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. But not everyone is planning on getting the vaccine. Before the pandemic, Bert was studying why some people get vaccines, why they don't, and what might change a person's mind. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at the University of Idaho, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at U of I. Throughout the fourth season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we'll talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Bert and I talked about the scientific and societal factors that lead to people being vaccine hesitant. Hello, Bert. Thank you so much for calling into the Vandal Theory today. Can you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. My name is Bert Baumgartner. I'm an associate professor of philosophy in the Department of Politics and Philosophy. Now, you're here today. We're actually going to talk about vaccines. And, you know, my first thought, vaccines and philosophy, I, I wouldn't necessarily have put those in the same camp. So how does philosophy overlap with uh, what's going on in the vaccine world? Yeah, thanks for that question. So philosophy is in part interested in the concept of rationality. And so we think a little bit about decision making and where I'm particularly interested in um, an area called decision theory, where you try to model or think about how people make their decisions. And in particular, I'm interested in understanding how things like social influence impact people's decision making. So vaccine hesitancy is a nice example where people are making a decision that is incorporating a variety of different uh, considerations. It's not just purely about the risks that come with getting the disease, but also considering other factors like the potential side effects that vaccines have, what people in their community are doing, what their doctors are recommending. So it turns out that vaccine hesitancy and vaccination decisions are a lot more complex than, than we might think. Yeah, I think we, especially right now, uh, COVID-19, and, and for our audience, we are recording this uh, on the first day of February, so things might have changed between uh, now and when you hear this. We've been listening to, you know, how good the vaccines are and everything, but then there's the whole other side of you actually have to get it in somebody's arm and they have to decide to show up. It's more than just the straight up science of making the vaccine of whether we have herd immunity and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So how did you get involved in talking about vaccines? So earlier in my career, when I was sort of starting out as a professor, I was really interested in understanding how things like echo chambers and polarization forms out of the decisions that individuals uh, make. 
and I was also interested in how those kinds of decisions or those sort of like social effects can have an impact on some real world um, scenarios. So uh, vaccine decisions, as well as other kinds of uh, what are called prophylactic behaviors. So these are behaviors that help reduce your exposure or risk um, to, uh, to becoming unhealthy. Uh, we were interested in understanding how these types of behaviors sort of have a feedback on the actual dynamics of a disease itself. So we know that if people start social distancing or you get lots of people vaccinated, that then drives down the number of cases there are of the disease. And a bit paradoxically, once the disease is more or less you know, reduced or almost non-existent, uh, that actually creates or removes the incentive to go get vaccinated, right? So to take an extreme example, if everybody but me is vaccinated, then that actually gives me very little incentive to go get vaccinated if all I'm concerned about is my own protection. So there's this sort of like paradoxical aspect of the more people get vaccinated, the less incentive there is to do it. And we saw this in the case of the measles outbreaks, where there were subpopulations uh, that had stopped vaccinating at a high enough frequency, which means we didn't have the herd immunity levels anymore, which means it was the possibility for measles reemerging had arisen. And sure enough, that's what we ended up seeing. So I got interested in vaccine attitudes or vaccine hesitancy, because I think that there are some really interesting sort of feedback loops about how people's decisions change the sort of environment. And then those changes in the environment ch shape how people are incentivized to make certain decisions. And then those incentives to make certain decisions will then again change people's behaviors. And those behaviors will then again change the environment. And so there's this really interesting feedback loop that uh, got me interested in, um, in vaccine hesitancy. Interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, so much of the herd immunity is to protect the people who literally can't take the vaccine for whatever reason. It, it's almost like you can tag along, get, get, you get a free ride. To... You get a free rider. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We call this a free rider problem. Uh, the free rider problem is is pretty widespread. And so it's, to me, it's interesting that this also uh, emerges in the context of infectious diseases and prophylactic behaviors like getting vaccinated or social distancing. All right. So you have been studying this for a while. So what can you tell us then about how does the risk of getting a disease and how do you measure that? Uh, how, how does the risk of getting a disease actually influence somebody's on whether they're going to get the vaccine or not? Is Yeah. So back in 2018, before COVID, we did a study in the, in the U.S., a survey study, where we had told people that there was this sort of new hypothetical disease. And what we wanted to figure out is how many local instances of the disease would it take for them to go get vaccinated where that vaccine uh, was deemed to be safe um, and was convenient and, and cheap to, to get. And what we saw, uh, as we sort of expected, is that when the risk of getting infected is quite low. So if there were zero local cases, for example, then we saw roughly about half the respondents willing to go get vaccinated. But then as we dialed up the risk, where the way that we understood risk here was in terms of the number of local uh, cases, as we dialed that up, 
more and more individuals or participants would get willing to get vaccinated. And we hit somewhere around about 90% um, on the average for the highest levels of the risk. And what we wanted to then um, investigate further was trying to understand how that sort of that change in risk, that sort of sensitivity to risk is different for different subpopulations. So as a sort of neutral or sort of predicted example of this is that older populations are more willing to go get vaccinated at low levels of risk, while younger generations are not willing to get vaccinated until the risk is much higher. And this makes sense, right? We know that younger uh, generations are more are willing to take risks, whereas as one gets older, right, you're more risk averse. You're, you're going to be more cautious. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, because you feel pretty invincible uh, when you're younger. <laughs> oh, I remember when I was 20. <laughs> oh, we're not going into all those stories in the podcast. <laughs> I'm not telling you how old I am now. <laughs> okay, so age also plays a factor in this as kind of a, a breakdown. Yeah. Uh, but I know other things do as well. So what kind of social factors, not just, you know, how many people in town are sick, but what kind of social factors push you one way or the other on this? Yeah. So it, it turns out that uh, ideology seems to be associated with people's willingness to get vaccinated. So there's there's two parts to this. The first part has to do with that Republicans or conservatives seem to be compared to Democrats or liberals to be less willing to get vaccinated. So Mm -hmm. among those that are willing to get vaccinated, right, you'll see a higher portion of Democrats. So that's the the first part. The second part, which I think is really interesting and related to the kind of research that I do, is that moderates seem to be the most sensitive to changes in risk. So that's to say when risk is really low, the moderates behave similarly to conservatives in that not as many of them are willing to get vaccinated compared to Democrats. But as you dial up the risk so that the risk is really, really high, then liberals or Democrats are much more willing to get vaccinated compared to Republicans. And so are the moderates. So the moderates sort of swing the most. They seem to be most sensitive to information about the risk of the disease, while Democrats and Republicans are more likely to sort of have made up their minds or are less sensitive to changes in risk. What do you think is driving that? Is it literally the, there are more people getting sick, so I'm going to do it? Is it new information? I don't know. What, what do you think drives the swing for the middle section? I mean, one way to think about what it means to be a moderate is to perhaps not be as engaged or have settled on a particular sort of worldview. And you're less responsive to things that sort of trigger or about ideology. And you might be looking more at whatever the the information is. Whereas liberals might have already made a decision that you know, getting vaccinated is something that's more closely linked to their ideology. Whereas for conservatives, you know, they need uh, some extra motivation to decide to get vaccinated. There's, there's another thing related to this as well that we're interested in is we do know that there are some important considerations about trust. So conservatives seem to have more skepticism and have less trust in 
the government, whereas liberals tend to have higher levels of trust. And if some news is coming out from the CDC, for example, then conservatives are more likely to be skeptical compared to a liberal. And so we think that that trust is also playing a role in people deciding to get vaccinated. What about misinformation and disinformation and just getting educated about the safety of vaccines and things like that? Is that the silver bullet to the problem? Like, or is there more to it than that? There's definitely more to it than that. Yeah, that's, I think it's a common misconception that if someone's vaccine hesitant, that the main reason for that is because they believe something false or that they have only access to some misinformation or disinformation. There, it's, it's a lot more complicated um, than that. So yes, you know, we're not saying that misinformation doesn't play some role, but we shouldn't think that the way to fix it is by just trying to educate people better. Again, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be educating people better and trying to, to remove misinformation that's out there. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't have that much faith in thinking that correcting misinformation is what's going to fix the, the problem. Uh, the reason for this has to do with the fact that information is interpreted based on what your worldview is or what your, what your other sort of commitments or values are. And you're going to use those kinds of uh, uh, those factors or values that you have in interpreting the information to then make uh, a decision. So I know I'm influenced by not just, you know, what I'm reading on the internet and stuff, but of course what I'm also reading on the internet is very much influenced by the people in my Facebook, which we know we're uh, siloing ourselves a lot. How much does that influence the decision I'm going to make? That's a great question. Uh, we don't, we don't know for sure. We do know that that seems to play some role, right? One of the things that we do just, uh, you know, being social creatures is you look at the people around you to see what they're doing and use that as a guide for uh, what you might do. So we do know that if you live in a community where there's a lot more uh, vaccine hesitancy, you're more likely to then also be vaccine hesitant and vice versa. We know that social media probably plays some effect, but trying to measure that to have some sort of quantitative uh, assessment of that is, is really difficult. So is this, and, and what you've been studying, is this whether I'm going to get a vaccine or whether I'm going to give like my child a vaccine? Oh, great. So in the cases that we've studied, the, we asked about whether you would get a vaccine. Now, there is some association between how people will make decisions about getting their children vaccinated. But in the case that we were studying, we were presenting the disease as if you're making a decision for yourself, not your child. Okay. Do you have any sense as to whether that would make a difference one way or the other? That's a great question. Bob, we don't know. We've controlled for whether it matters whether someone has a child or not um, in our study. And that seemed to not make a difference in the, the models we were testing. But that's not to say that it doesn't have any impact at all. It just didn't have a significant one for the study that we did. So let's talk about, we've been kind of talking more generalized vaccines, but let's be honest, COVID is <laughs> uh, sort of on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about the fact that we are actually starting to get vaccines. And at this point, are you surprised by people's opinions on 
whether they want the vaccine. It seems like it is changing over the last few months. Can you just kind of talk us through what's going on? Yeah. One thing that is sort of interesting to pay attention to is, so our research was done, right, pre-COVID. And Pew put out a research study back in early December that was analyzing willingness to get vaccinated for COVID specifically. And there's been fluctuations, right? Like uh, early in May, it was relatively high. And then we saw a large drop over the summer. And then we see that it's rising and increasing again. And as you pointed out earlier, you can develop the vaccine, but if people aren't willing to take it, then that's not in fact going to have the impact uh, that you want it to have. So it's been interesting to sort of compare what our results have been to the results that Pew found. And there are some interesting uh, consistencies here. So for example, we had noticed that in our study, so pre-COVID, that men were more willing than women to get vaccinated. And that's consistent with what the Pew research found as well, that men seem to be more willing to get vaccinated than women are. Something else sort of specifically that we've seen in the case of the COVID vaccine, that vaccine hesitancy did seem to be a factor in getting healthcare professionals to get vaccinated. And what they did in those cases was rather than sending out some generic information to try to sort of broadly provide information to people, what some hospitals did was actually allow their employees to contact the specific doctors to have their specific concerns addressed. And that that seemed to be a, a relatively effective way of being able to address the hesitancy that some people had. So as a brief example, some people were pregnant and wanted to know, to what extent am I going to be at a higher risk because I'm pregnant and, and getting vaccinated? So being able to address sort of really specific concerns like that um, by having a one-on-one discussion, while that's more time-consuming, is more likely to be effective in addressing the people's hesitancy. Why do you think that is? Is it just like the human contact of it? And and like you said, trust in something, it's easier to trust a real human than pamphlets? Yeah, I think that, and, and this is supported by our uh, studies as well, is having a source of information that you perceive as not being in somebody else's pocket or not having some type of separate motives is you're more likely to trust those individuals. So as a good example, in an earlier study that we did, I believe this is back in 2016 or 2017, we found that those individuals who had higher levels of trust in their primary health providers were more likely or more willing to get vaccinated than those who had lower trust in healthcare practitioners. And what's most sort of interesting is that seems to be nonpartisan, whereas the government seems to be, you know, if you're getting information from the CDC, for example, if someone has a high level of skepticism towards government institutions, right, then they're less willing to get vaccinated because of the source of that information. So one of the recommendations we had is encourage people to talk to their primary health care providers and make sure that the primary health care providers have accurate information. That makes sense. Uh, out of curiosity, you mentioned, so did I get this right? Men are more likely to get the vaccine? Yeah, both in the Pew research specifically for COVID, as well as for um, sort of more hypothetical diseases in general, we find that men are more willing to get vaccinated than women. I guess that that actually surprises me slightly. Yeah, it surprised us a little bit too, right? Because just like how 
yeah, typically younger people are more willing to engage in risky behavior than older individuals. We similarly find that women tend to be more cautious than men. So you would think, given that the concerns that are related with an infectious disease, that women would be more willing to engage in prophylactic behavior that includes vaccination. But what we think is happening is, as you sort of have previously pointed out, women are the ones who have higher concerns for their children than men, typically. And given that there are sometimes side effects to a vaccine, that those side effects might be more salient for women respondents than they are for men. And so that might explain why women are less willing to get vaccinated than men are. Well, uh, we're getting towards the end here, but was there anything kind of big take-home message that you'd like people to remember about uh, vaccine risk? Not about vaccine risk uh, specifically, but I can't help but you know plug the study of philosophy. I think this is a great example of how philosophers uh, are doing some hard thinking about how to address a really complex issue and that philosophers are really good at synthesizing and doing interdisciplinary work. So I'm hoping that part of what people take away from this kind of study is the realization that philosophy isn't this sort of, you know, just armchair sitting in an ivory tower, uh, wearing funny clothes uh, and smoking a pipe. Um, you know, we, we actually engage with the sciences and, and try to help synthesize and again, help develop models and ways of thinking about complex issues. I love the fact that you brought in the pipe because as you were talking, <laughs> I had my image in my head and it, the person definitely had a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Bert, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through all this. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. If you found the intricacies of Bert's work interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. The University of Idaho Confluence Lab, along with University of Oregon and Whitman College, was awarded a roughly $4.5 million grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to address racial and climate justice issues. University of Idaho scientists, in collaboration with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, are exploring why some Idaho moose populations are declining. So far, they found that adult survival is high and are now looking at calf survival, disease, and parasites. The U.S. Department of Energy awarded more than $2 million to three projects that partner with College of Engineering faculty. The money will be used to help advance understanding of new nuclear technologies and make them safer to operate. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. If you want to learn more about Bert's work, I hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory. There you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And we'd love it if you would subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. You can help people find The Vandal Theory by leaving a rating and review while you're there. We really hope you're enjoying these stories. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining us.